the fight itself gives shape to the union that workers participate in later, right? The fight itself and the leaders that sort of arise in the shape and culture of the fight end up being leaders in the union that exists afterwards. And if we don't find ways to both sort of fight with all of the speed and might that we have to in order to win and take into account some of the ethical questions that we're grappling with at the same time, we end up building unions that are not truly democratic or rank and file led. There's a question about how to democratize the skills that it takes to win a fight during a fight. And that's really fucking hard to do. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. By joining the book club, you get all new Haymarket titles delivered to your door and a 50% discount on the entire Haymarket website, all for one low price. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Good afternoon, everybody, or uh, I guess it's good afternoon across the country. Thanks so much for joining us today. I'm Jesse Sharkey. I am uh, the former president of the Chicago Teachers Union and uh, currently teaching classroom. I teach ninth graders in South Shore High School and Chicago Public Schools. Uh, I'm somewhat of a student of the labor movement, and I'm thrilled today to be joined by Daisy Pitkin, um, who has um, just written this fantastic book on the line. Um, and we're going to be talking about the book and the labor movement in general and um, hopefully getting into some good conversations. And then um, after about an hour of that, we're going to have a chance for people in the, in the audience to ask questions. And we'll be trying to dig into um, to subjects and, and, and things that pe people raise from the floor. So uh, really looking forward to that. Um, and um, uh, so I'm, I'm going to get started. Uh, I do want to say before I forget, though, um, um, people will have tuned into Haymarket Books events before. Um, what a great press. Um, really happy to be working with it. And um, we've also got some other co-sponsors of, of, co of this event. Um, the Caucus of Rank-and-File Educators, or CORE, um, which is uh, we're the big rank-and-file force in, in the city of Chicago and Teachers Union, um, which I'm uh, one of the founding members of, and uh, happy to have them co-sponsoring the event, as well as Labor Notes. Uh, which is a real source of inspiration on um, political analysis in the labor movement and an important organization. Um, and then also on um, Pilsen Community Books, uh, which, you know, people need good books, people need good ideas. So um, uh, with with that being said, I, I do want to um, turn to Daisy. And um, Daisy, why don't you um, introduce yourself, say a few things to the audience about who you are and um, what brings you on the show today? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Jesse. I'm really excited to be able to talk with you about the book and about the labor movement. So thanks for taking the time. And hey, everyone, I'm Daisy Pitkin. I'm a union organizer and a writer. I live now in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, um, where I work with Workers United, which is the union that is has the great fortune of supporting um, organizing Starbucks workers all across the country. 
Um, and I, you know, I'm lucky to be the national field director on that campaign currently. But I come, you know, I've had about 20 years of organizing experience in various unions and community organizations. Um, I started as a new organizer working for Unite, um, a precursor to Unite Here and a precursor of Workers United uh, in Arizona, organizing industrial laundry workers. And then kind of um, from there started organizing industrial laundry workers all across the U.S., um, mo most of the book is kind of a, takes place in the world of industrial laundries and the hard fights that those workers had to have in order to build unions in the early 2000s. Uh, great. Uh, well, I, I'm, I've been looking forward to this um, conversation. Um, you know, since I managed to finagle my way into it, I, I heard your interview on The Dig. And if people uh, listen to that podcast, um, or if you, even if you don't, uh, look, look that up. It's, it's, it's a very good, um, you know, go, goes through, Dan, uh, Dan and you, Daisy, go, go through the book in, in, in quite a bit, bit of detail. And I'm not going to try to recreate that here. Um, I, I will say, though, to, to kind of help set the scene a little bit. Um, so you were organizing in industrial laundry. Um, and, you know, it's a story of, um, you, you know, really tough conditions for um, uh, low wage uh, immigrant um, uh, women, largely, not not entirely, but but largely. Um, and, you know, it, it's not a, something that um, uh, people have written about a lot, but it, it's it, it's really elemental and, and, and powerful. Um, can you can you talk a little bit about um, uh, sort of what that experience was like and, and, and give a sense of people a little bit of a flavor of what you're writing about in the book? Yeah, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to write the book is because... Um, well, there are a lot of reasons. I hope we can talk about a bunch of them. But one of them is that people don't really know about industrial laundries. They don't know that they exist. It's a kind of indivisible, in, invisible work that um, is happening all the time all around us, and, and people don't tend to know about it. And I think it's important to know um, that that very difficult, dangerous work is happening on the outskirts of every major city, every large community all across the country where people work in big industrial warehouses on heavy machinery to launder linens that come from restaurants and hotels and also from hospitals. Um, and, you know, in these massive industrial spaces, workers are sorting um, dirty laundry. Uh, the book takes place mainly in one industrial facility where workers were worked in, it was a hospital laundry. So workers were um, laundering soiled linen that comes from hospitals. And, you know, the work from the very beginning of the production line where workers are pulling apart wads of laundry coming from hospitals and coming into contact with fluids and surgical tools um, and all kinds of things that you can imagine get uh, wind up in the, in the laundry at a hospital. From the very beginning of the production line all the way through the factory, the book um, in one of its kind of narrative lines tries to follow the laundry as it goes through the factory because every step along the way, there are different kinds of dangers that workers face and um, injuries, burns, sprains, um, contact wounds with, um, with you know, um, surgical needles and supplies, 
are not uncommon in, in these facilities. And that's what the workers are, are facing. They go into work every day and, um, you know, they're risking a lot for very little um, to be able to provide this service to the communities where they live. Yeah, yeah, no, and it's it's work done by it's it's work done by the people who have the least, you know, bargaining power associated with their labor in our society, does isn't it? Right, um, you know, a couple thoughts. You know, one one of the things that you said in the book that really struck me is that, um, you know, the process of sorting the laundry into different bits in the U.S. is done when the laundry is dirty. Um, and, you know, so st still is contaminated with all the various um, things that, um, uh, you know, were in it when it came out of the hospital um, or whatnot. Um, and in Europe, that the first thing that happens to laundry is that it's washed. Uh, and in the U.S., um, you know, the, they decide to protect the equipment because it's, it's harder on the equipment to wash the, it first. Like, yeah. talk a little bit about that. I mean, that's, that's, that struck me as being kind of outrageous. No, I didn't learn that until a couple of years in to my like laundry organizing experience. And probably the most dangerous um, department in industrial laundries is what we call soil sort in the U.S., where the dirty linen comes in and there's a line of workers working on a conveyor belt, having to pull the linens apart and put it into various bins. One bin for sheets, one bin for gowns, one bin for... Uh, pillowcases, and they're sort sorting it, and it comes soiled. Um, so, you know, there's an industrial laundry here in Pittsburgh where Workers United is the representative of the workers there. And, the you know, I was there just a few weeks ago, and the linen is coming down these um, conveyor belts and being pulled apart. Every piece of linen nearly is covered with, like, puke and feces, and, and workers are working very quickly to sort the linen, um, there are surgical tools that get caught in the linen that are coming down this conveyor belt. Um, you can imagine the dangers that workers are facing. And the reason um, they have to face it is because if we did the practice that is more common in Europe, which is called clean sort, where the linen is not sorted until after it goes through the industrial washers where it's sanitized and the materials are, the linen is sort of separated in the wash and cleaned, which is safer for the workers, but much harder on the machines. It wears the machines down faster and they have to get replaced more frequently. Um, in the U.S., of course, the workers who are working in that, in that front department have to take on the burden of have to take on the damage into their bodies rather than having the machines be damaged. It's just another corner that laundry companies sort of manage to cut here in the U.S. to make the workers themselves absorb those dangers and that wear and tear on their bodies to protect the machines. Yeah, it's a pretty good metaphor for the way capitalism works in this country, isn't it? Um, yeah. Um, and yeah, so the 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 book is not really, uh, I mean, there's there's obviously that visceral kind of a brutal feature of, of the work, um, but it's really it's a really story of resistance and in, in, in a in a pretty inspiring tale about solidarity. Um, and in particular, um, you know the sort of the the um, you know there's this there's this um, um, woman who you know the book really revolves around. Um, you know, who uh, really early on, like I think your first meeting with her decides that she's going to be a fighter for the union uh, and, and change the way things are in this in, in this laundry. Um, 
inspired. It was an inspiring story. Can you can you just retell that a little bit for the people who are who are um, uh, who haven't read the book yet? Um, I hope they will. Um, uh, and then before getting on to other stuff. Yeah. So the book is in some parts of it is kind of written in the second person form to the main worker leader at this industrial laundry facility that I was talking about a minute ago. And her name is Alma. And Alma still is one of the most incredible, gutsiest worker leaders I've ever met. Um, from the very first house call at her house, which was during the phase of the campaign where we were secretly building organizing committee before a blitz, um, we met with Alma first because her husband was the cousin of a shop steward at an industrial laundry in another state. Um, and we found him through like relational mapping and then went to her house and it was nearly my first house call as kind of a very new organizer. And Alma explained to us, she worked in the soil sort department and explained to us what soil sort was, what she had to do with her body for 10 hours a day at this factory. And by the end of the house call, she said, you know, you don't even have to tell me more about the union. I know what it means to fight and I'm going to I'm going to throw down <laughs> um, and we, we're going to organize this factory. And she did. I mean, the book sort of lays out all of the ways in which labor law is flawed and loopholed and makes it nearly impossible um, and really incentivizes companies to union bust, which they did in very vicious ways. And it took years to win that fight. Um, and the book sort of walks through step by step what these workers had to face and go through. And every time we felt like we, we had won, there was yet another obstacle that they had to go through. So the book sort of lays that piece out narratively. But Alma not only led the organizing committee and that really long, years-long fight in her own factory, she founded a laundry local then in Phoenix, Arizona, which is where her laundry is located and organized six other laundries across the city at the same time that they were going through this years long dogfight at her own factory. Um, she's sort of an incredible worker leader in the book, in some ways a sort of a tribute to her, but also a tribute to the, the worker leaders who are like Alma all across the country, who are really true heroes of the labor movement, who sort of go unsung or unknown. Um, so, you know, there are, there are dozens of Almas, hun maybe hundreds of Almas across the country, though no one probably nearly as cool as the actual Alma, <laughs> um, but the people who are willing to risk their livelihoods and do, you know, thousands of hours of deep organizing work in their communities are incredible humans who I think deserve to be, to be known and celebrated. Yeah, I, I, I want to ask you more about this, the, the category of sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, rank and file work, worker leaders that, that, you know, that, that come out of a particular workplace struggle or a workplace that that, um, that, that come to lead union fights. And I, I think it's a it's a topic that, that needs to be explored more. But be, before we get there, I, I just uh, I, I do want to say that. Um, you know the the obviously living through that thing where you're in a years long slog to try to like to try to force a a, a big um, corporation to recognize a, a union I, you know it can feel like you know pushing a boulder up a mountain I'm sure um, well it does I um, but um, 
I just like the book is full of these really they don't necessarily feel inspiring given all the, the, the broad picture but all these really sort of inspiring instances of like you know just the the practical tactics the 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 ways that workers innovate you know to fight and to talk even though like you're you're trying not to do that you know the boss is trying to keep you from doing that um, march on the boss the meetings in the parking lot the um you know i i don't know the the, the constantly figuring out how to reconstitute an organizing committee despite all the, the 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 obstacles to it i mean i just found that stuff quite inspiring um can you talk about that a little bit yeah i think you know, I'm, so I'm a writer and I'm also an organizer. And I think as a writer, I often I crave sort of stories about labor that feel like the work of organizing. And it, it's hard to find them. You know, there are a lot of good books about labor and labor history and that recount organizing campaigns that are incredibly important. But it's hard to... to um, help readers who are not organizers or don't necessarily know what it is like to work on an organizing campaign. I think it's difficult to convey what it feels like to be involved in like the the gut churning pace of an organizing campaign, you know, and the sort of the relentlessness through which you have to approach the work all the time, every day, and that workers have to come together form these organizing committees and stand up to their, go into work and stand up to their boss day after day after day for years in order to win. It's really hard to convey what that feels like, right. you know? No, I really liked um, the way you talked with this character, Lysandra, Sandra, <laughs> um, uh, but, yeah. but, you know, uh, you know, the boss, but, you know, not a person, not some big corporate faraway boss, the kind of boss that was actually interpersonally very influential um uh manipulative uh, you, you know and what i it just it, it may it took the fight against the boss and took it out of some abstraction that you read about in a textbook and made it into this thing where you understood how difficult it would be to go against this person who both had the power to hire and fire you or or to put you on shifts but like was really all up in your business and and knew you know knew everything about and in some ways was i mean i think at one point you said she was the the, the sad truth of the matter is that she was one of the most important leaders in that shop um not for yeah. the force of good um so that yeah. just is interesting i think a lot about la sandra which is what the workers called her kind of attaching the article to her name as a way to sort of make fun of her and you know depower her in the way when we make fun of the boss Sometimes we do that in <laughs> worker meetings, right? Um, and it's a way of, of um, asking ourselves to be able to look at them in a different kind of light, um, which is important in an organizing campaign. An organizing campaign is um, at its heart about a shift in not just the power dynamic as it exists, but our ability to, to perceive or imagine a different kind of world, a different kind of relationship to our bosses at work. And so calling her La Sandra, I think was part of that, part of the campaign. Like, can we imagine a different kind of relationship with this person who has the power to hire and fire us, who's surveilling us, interrogating us, pulling us in for captive audience meetings, who has a lot of power? Well, I think a lot about her because, you know, she was not, as you said, not a high ranking person in the corporate structure. She was a local 
human resources manager in one of thousands of factories that this company had, you know, or workplaces. They weren't all laundry factories, but across the country. I mean, she was one of thousands of local HR managers inside this massive global corporation. She didn't have a lot of power um, to speak of, but inside the plant, the power that she did have was very important to her, right? The culture of work in the United States is very much set up so that local managers um, are, are like their investment in their own authority is part of what we have to deconstruct and resist when we're organizing a union. So the battle, sadly, was often, it felt like it was between the workers and the worker leaders and these local managers, instead of it being about this corporation and the billions of dollars of wealth that they've been able to extract from the labor of these workers. Um, And and they kind of, the company managed to sort of localize the fight in this factory. And part of our fight was getting getting outside of that, I think. Right. And in terms of their class position, those managers aren't really that much. They got probably in certain ways in terms of how much money they make and where they go every day for their work and what they spend the day thinking about aren't that much different, have more in common or, or more closely aligned with a with set of workers, um, despite the fact that they're really serving the boss's interests um, admirably well. You know, it reminds me of... Um, sort of the, the, the tales about the tyranny of the foreman and, and factory work during the 20s and 30s, um, you know, before the before the um, industrial, before the CIO was able to form a presence. And, you know, which is, uh, you know, I mentioned partly because I wanted to bring in, uh, it's a remarkable book, uh, you know, and we're talking to Daisy Pitkin who wrote On the Line, um, which, you know, uh, and one of the things you do, Daisy, that I, I really loved is the way you, is the way you weave, um, talking about the women textile workers in the early 20th century and in particular the you know the work around the um uh, the triangle shirtwaist fact you know fire and and, and factory and and that is and, and seeing that as a sign of actually a failed organizing and failed strike um um I, th- I you know i thought that was really important I, it, it strikes me as it's hard to really get the flavor of what we're doing now if you can't see those earlier struggles as being you know part of that same tradition i think that's right and i think you know in the labor movement we tell we like to tell stories about the labor movement and in unions we like to tell stories about the union that we work for it's a part of acculturating workers who are in a fight to the union that they're um you know fighting to join um i found that kind of a process of acculturation really interesting as an organizer and as a writer. I paid attention in some ways to the language that was used in the acculturation process, not just for organizers, but for workers, but also in the stories that we were taught to tell. Why those stories? Why are we learning to tell them in this particular way? Why is this important to the union? What message does it convey to the workers who are fighting to join the union? So that the history in the book shows up there because there it's sort of founded on the stories that were important to unite about itself. And I was taught as a young organizer to tell those particular stories because unite was conveying a kind of idea about itself, right? Um, I, I think those stories were really interesting because the more I dug into them after I stepped away from Unite Here for a couple of years, 
the more I realized that what was left out of the stories and the way that I was taught to tell them was the exact work of organizing that I had been trained to do. Like the daily grind of organizing is missing from a lot of stories about organizing. And I was really fascinated by that. Like what, why, what service does that do to the work itself or to the building of the labor movement? And of course, as I'm writing this book, I am telling a story about the union in which I'm thinking about how stories are told about the union. So I, I wanted to sort of be critical and thoughtful about the process of telling a story at all about organizing, why you choose the kinds of narratives that you do and where we kind of contextualize or decontextualize the more heroic moments of an organizing campaign from the really hard daily work that it takes to make them matter. Right. No, that, that's right. So there's right, the, the the heroic moment of of the you know workers deciding to go on wildcat strike in the textile industry in, in uh, you know in early 20th century New York, um, and then then focusing in on the particular young woman who um, you know who, who who made the speech, but who like if you look at her her arc of her life. Um, suffered for it in, in a lot of ways and you know wasn't sort of like you know the the thinking about the heroicness of our struggles is like sometimes sort of misplaced isn't it movement <laughs> takes a lot of bruises a lot of lumps i think that's true and i think also that the what we think of as the heroic part of the work isn't actually the heroic part of the work i think we should trouble that idea that there are heroics in the work that look like a woman being hoisted onto a stage, which is the story of, you know, the uprising of the 20,000 and what happened at that meeting in Cooper Union, that this anonymous wisp of a girl, Clara Lemlich, was hoisted up onto the stage and then she called for a general strike and the next day 15,000 workers followed her into the street. That's a fantasy. Well, we all wish to do that. Right? <laughs> if only we that was that easy. <laughs> Yeah, in telling that, so imagine standing up in front of a group of workers in an industrial laundry who are fighting to organize a union against a really viciously anti-union boss in Phoenix, Arizona, like reddest state in the early 2000s, deep red city, deep red state, Joe Arpaio country. Here we are trying to organize a union against all odds, right? And we open talking about the history of Unite and we tell that story. <laughs> What does it mean to the work? Like, are they supposed to imagine themselves as, okay, like, how is that supposed to land, first of all? And second of all, it it is a fantasy, right? It didn't really happen that way. What happened is that Claire Lemlich was an incredibly skilled shop organizer who had built an organizing committee, not just in her own shop, but in hundreds of garment factories across the city over the course of years of very hard work, difficult organizing conversations, right? Like had built a, an infrastructure through which this general strike could be carried out. Right. Everyone at that meeting knew who of, she was. Right. And was, it was. And was out of an explicit organized political tradition that focused on, you know, it had an analysis of the industry and, and what workers should try to do to build political power. And like, you know, you know yeah, was, was, was a trained politico um, in the best sense yes. of the word, right? 
And that was heroic. Like the years of work that led up to that meeting is what was heroic about what happened there. Not that she stood up on stage and called for a general strike and that people followed her into the street. I mean, that's also pretty cool, you know? <laughs> it's good that that happened, but the heroics are the, the work that it took to get there and make that moment matter. And stripping our own mythology in the union, mythologizing the union in such a way that decontextualizes it from that broader work is a mistake, I think. I think it doesn't do us any any good in the labor movement. Um, I, I often think about that in terms of like the way, you know, the Flint sit down strikes or, or, other, or other big, you know, strike labor battles. Um, and, and I think it's obvious why we pay attention to those things. That's the moment when the balance of class of, of power shifts in a way the boss notices, right? But the moment yeah. that the, 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 the power shifts in the way that workers notice is when they, when they kind of count up and they say, you know, wait, there's more of us than there are of them. And right now we're capable of sticking together and that kind of feeling of workplace democracy based on our ability to be united um, is something which happens on a much more molecular basis at work and on the conversations people have around it. And which is the, which is the incredible thing about unionism to me. It's like, it distinguishes union work from all the other forms of struggle that I'm, you know, it's that it's, it's a participatory democracy. Um, yeah. That's quite you're exactly right that we and you know most narratives about struggle or resistance paint the moment of heroism in a similar light because they often I think center the thing that must be resisted right mm -hmm. and what we're building around the outside through this more sort of molecular organizing I think that's what you just called it which I think is brilliant um gets sort of pushed into the margins of the story around the core thing, which is the thing that we are resisting. And that's why the, the heroic moment is painted as the moment at which the boss or whatever is at the, you know, position of authority in whatever system it is that's being resisted, um, when they notice, because they remain at the center of most stories that we tell about this stuff, about this kind of work. It's rare that we tell stories about what gets built when we resist rather than how we resisted and won. Right, right, yeah. Um, I, you, you know, maybe this is, I mean, so we've spent uh, about a half an hour kind of going going through some, I hope people can, I hope, sort of piece together the basic narrative of, of the book. Um, um, there's a couple of other, a couple of themes that I want to kind of get into and, uh, you know, and, and get days to get your thoughts about. Um, um, I, maybe since we're on it, maybe we should talk a little bit about workplace democracy and, you know, what that means in our labor movement and, the, and, and its importance to the unions, because it just strikes me as being um, really uneven uh, what kind of a job unions do of that. Um, I, you have thoughts about that? I, I can say more, but I'm just curious if, if I jump in there. Yeah, I think I think you're right that we do. Um a lot of the job we do on that front as unions, we're talking about it from that angle, um, depends on sort of the culture of the union itself. And the culture of the union tends to matter a lot in terms of the shape of an organizing campaign and the shape of the union that is built through the process of organizing, I think. 
Um, I think that we don't think about that enough. Um, and, and we ought to, I think as practitioners of the hard work of organizing, it's really important to think about and analyze and problematize and investigate and question the culture of the union in which we work because it matters. Um, because it, it gives sort of a, the words we use matter, the stories we tell matter. Um, and it gives a shape to the union that workers um, are able to, or sometimes allowed to build. Um, and I think sometimes the union that gets built ends up sort of replacing the authority of the boss at work with the authority of the union. And I think that, um, you know, if, if the goal at the end of the day is workplace democracy, then the way we organize is really important. Right. Yeah, and I, and I and I like that you think of it as a call, as a question of of workers' culture and the way that we relate to each other um, in a workplace, um, because there are unions that have good formal democracy, but in fact wind up making decisions very much in spaces that are removed from where people are talking about their concerns at work and feel ownership of it and fight for their ideas and and and, and whatnot. Um, uh, and and I suspect there are probably unions uh, where where there's way less formal democracy. That is where there's a president who makes a whole bunch of decisions, um, but spends a lot of time thinking about what people think and what people are saying. Um, you know, it's it, I, it doesn't strike me as being that we're going to have luck rebuilding the labor movement. You know, transforming the, you know people's lives in what is it a, a brutally exploitive society that we live in unless people get some taste of their own power uh, and, and have some sense of their own agency in, in making decisions about what to do with our own organizations and let's see how it works. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think that, you know, people, especially, maybe especially younger people who are joining the labor movement or trying to understand what it means to fight for democracy at work at this point and to form unions. I think the question of agency inside of that process um, is really present and it, and, and it should be um, because that is what's going to um, sort of continue to encourage this sort of beginning of perhaps a wave of organizing that we're seeing now. There's a lot of talk about the new organizing wave. And there, you know, there is a lot of new energy, I think. I, I see it from where I'm, I am here in Pittsburgh, um, the work that I do in the Starbucks campaign at this, at this moment. But, um, you know, I think if it's gonna, if that is gonna continue, there's a real reckoning that has to happen internally in the labor movement to understand our own culture and where it locates power um, or, or, or I think we're in trouble. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I went, before I became a teacher, um, I spent a couple of years as a, uh, a staff organizer for, um, first for the Steelworkers Union and then for 1199 in New England. And, um, you know, I was, um, I wasn't a steel worker and I wasn't a healthcare worker. I was a college graduate, um, who had, um, you know, left-wing politics and was comfortable enough talking to strangers. They said, you know, you, you'd be a great organizer. Um, and, you know, I could do that. I had those skills. I could do that. Um, but it was, it, I, it, it, it 
troubled me in ways that I couldn't put my finger on. And um, I, I really like reading your thinking about the question of who gets to be the we. And you, you know, you, you have a section of the book where, where like you're um, there's a there's a fight, you know, the, the Unite is merging with HGRE. Um, and you, you really become, makes you very conscious of the kind of different union cultures and the way that you, union staff members talk about the union and, and, and use the, fir the, the, the first person plural pronoun, we, we're doing this, we're doing that, we're, you know, uh, and who gets to be the we? <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. And how, and how the we shifts um, depending on who's in the room. Um, I think it's really interesting that, you know, sometimes if you're standing in front of a group of rank and file folks that the, you, and you are a staff organizer who is not from the rank and file, I notice that a lot of people in that position don't say we then, they say you and your union. Um, and then in a room where it's just staff organizers, we say we, our union, this is what we are doing, here is the plan. Um, I found the, the sort of slipperiness in that language really interesting all the time. Um, but yeah, in the book there, you know, part of this um, discussion that we're having about culture, I think for me comes out of becoming a new organizer in Unite, not really understanding that Unite had a kind of culture. Of course, I mean, all organizing departments, all unions do. But I, I was just sort of swimming around in it like a fish in water. I didn't really understand that there was a culture until he came into sort of sharp contact with a culture that in some ways could not have been more different. Um, and a lot of it had to do about the way staff organizers thought about their role in the union. Um, and in Unite, you know, staff organizer role um, was really meant to be very... Uh, not personal. I mean, the work that we were doing was incredibly personally charged and emotional because it's impossible to do organizing work at all and certainly not to do it well unless you're kind of emotionally involved. But staff organizers were really meant to be kind of invisible. We were just sort of a tool or a conduit for workers to organize their union. Um, and we kind of, we didn't reckon at all or think at all about the fact that the conduit is not a perfect conduit, of course. Like we, um, our ideas about things, our training, our own kind of personal thoughts and experiences are going to go into this campaign and give it some sort of shape. And we sort of ignored that that was true at all times because what was important is that these workers were going to form a union and have a union. And we were just a mechanism to make that happen. And the culture that we came into contact with was nearly the opposite of that, that the staff organizer and their role and their sort of personal connection to the work was the most important thing in the work. Um, and it was shocking, right, to, to see this kind of different way of thinking about the work that we were doing that we all cared so much about. If you are enjoying the Haymarket Live series, you'll also be interested in a new book from Haymarket. Class Struggle Unionism by Joe Burns. Class Struggle Unionism is the belief that our union struggle exists within a larger struggle between an exploiting billionaire class and the working class, which actually produces the goods and services in society. Drawing on years of labor organizing and study of labor tradition, Joe Burns outlines the key set of ideas common to class struggle unionism 
and shows how these ideas can create a more militant, democratic, and fighting labor movement. As Sarah Nelson puts it, there is nothing more essential for the resurgence of the labor movement than cutting through the racial, social, gender, and political divisions driven by the corporate class to deny the working class power and keep workers in competition with each other. Class struggle unionism not only defines the urgency of our common struggle, it's a textbook on how to organize around our common demands right where we work in order to build a movement strong enough to realize an inclusive economy and thriving democracy. Find Class Struggle Unionism at haymarketbooks.org. You know, um, I, I, I think it's, it's, it's a fascinating, uh, you know, um, uh, point and, and raises this issue. You know, and it, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about it because I, I walked away from, you know, trade union official. I was like, I, you know, last, last thing I want to be is a union bureaucrat, harumph, you know, and then it turned out that I spent 12 years of my life running a union, go figure, some irony in that. Um, but I, but, but it, which caused me to reflect a lot. And, and I think that there, you know, I mean, if we're being honest, um, there are some things about, you know, young college graduates that are well suited to running unions. Like, you know, you get a lot of training and ideology. You have to like tell a lot of narratives, but, you know, you have to like write things and, and, um, um, you know, all that stuff, you know, and for people who've got a lot of training in politics, uh, you know, that's extremely important as well, because it's ideological work. Um, you, it's really hard work to do, to work this hard for, you know, you know, against some difficult odds, if you don't believe in it. Um, and so maybe it's not a, a surprise that, you know, college educated politicos wind up, um, you, you know, as union administrators across the country. Um, and, you know, and I don't think there's anything wrong with acknowledging that, but I do think there's something really problematic um, if we can't see that there's a, the, it, it, there, it's a built-in weakness if people, if we, if there isn't a way for people to learn ideology and politics and that set of skills who come out of workplaces, <laughs> because after all, it's the workplace and, and the depredations of it that are, that really are one of the main driving forces and people wanting to fight. Um and I, I, it's that part that I don't, like in my experience, unions don't necessarily do a good job with. Um, yeah, I think that's right. I think, um, you know, in the book, I think a lot about what it meant to be a young, white, college-educated person in a position that we were pretending was not really a position of power in the union, but that was most definitely a position of power in the union. And why were we pretending that it wasn't? Um, and and you know why why did the union have to take this kind of shape and you're right that a lot of unions across the country are still structured in that way and for good reason it's there's a good reason that um there are sort of young um lefty ideologues coming out of um undergraduate programs or graduate school who um have learn some of the skills or come already prepackaged with some of the skills that you need to be an organizer and have a lot of heart and time and energy to pour into the really difficult um, work of organizing. And we, it, it makes a lot of sense that, that the, that unions have taken this kind of shape. Right. And right. I've been thinking a lot. Oh, go ahead. No, I, I um, go ahead. I, 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 it, I was just yes handing you. <laughs> Keep going. I've been thinking a lot lately about like, um, you know, there's when you're forming a union 
there are kind of two things happening at the same time. There's the campaign that is going that you're running that needs to beat the company um, so that the company that you're organizing is um, going to get to a place where they don't want to fight the union anymore and they realize that they have to sit down and bargain with workers and give them a, a fair contract and a better deal, right? There's like the, the campaign. And then inside the campaign, there's the union that's being built. Um, and, and all the ways that workers through the campaign are beginning to orient themselves to each other in a new kind of way, are starting to build a, a sort of power that is separate from the power relationship at work, but they're building a kind of power that comes from collective action and solidarity with each other. <clears throat> and, and they're building a union, right? So there's the work of building the union inside of this campaign that is working to sort of resist and um, put pressure on a company that's going to have to come to the table and, and bargain. And I think that uh, we, we confuse those two things for each other a lot of the time. Like we do a, a good job sometimes in some unions at the campaign part and kind of forget about the union building part that needs to happen simultaneous, simultaneously. Otherwise, we can win the campaign and not really have a union. And then instead, what we have is a contract that has to be administered by like union staff. And right, um, Which, I mean, talk about something that like um, you know, there's a, um, not even college skills; these are like legalistic skills. Then then lawyers come and, and you know, and it's and it's true that if you if you want to do the the rules of evidence for arbitrations and all that, and that's where the unionism lives, it it gets even more hidebound and difficult for that's people. That's right. right. There's sort of a tyranny of expertise that we get caught up in on the campaign side. It's like you need expert mm -hmm. lawyers and expert researchers and expert this and you know people who can look into the finances and do this thing with it. And let, you know, there's like um, people who spent a long time learning the skills that they need to do to do the campaign work. And they, um, in, in a lot of ways, those end up being positions of power on a campaign that's really supposed to be about, or in some ways supposed to be about this other thing. Right, because the truth of the matter is that like the most important thing that people can learn in an organizing campaign is don't believe the boss's lies. And there's some kids that didn't go to college, you know, went right to work in their laundry factory, um, but haven't believed the boss's lies ever in their life, <laughs> which is the reason why they were punished in school and, you know, and, and, and work in this fucking factory and actually yeah. like have um, incredibly good politics in that. And, and I, one of the things that gives me hope is the degree to which, um, you know, I, I look around our society and we, and we talk about an upsurge in organizing and I can't help but think that it's related to the fact that like there's 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 certainly an important layer of young people who are politicizing who are who are trying to but by which i mean um thinking about you know the class structure of american society and looking back in the history of the, of the history of our movements and are thinking about what it's going to take to win um and when that when that when that kind of a layer of politicized motivated people finds its way into like workplace leaders um, that strikes me as being really like where, where we need to be and really important. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think, you know, we see there's a lot of new organizing happening right now, sector after sector, region after region, all across the country, right? All different 
um, kinds of employers being organized now. And Starbucks, right? And Starbucks, but there's there is there's a kind of organizing now that's happening in sort of the arts and culture, um, museum workers and librarians and cafe workers and and um, they tend to be places I think at least in the organizing that I've done where I encounter um, people who are sort of predisposed to wanting to have a union because they want to have democracy at work um, rather than like there, there's sort of a, a political bent to the organizing that is less about, although it's certainly about workplace issues. I think a lot of people look at the Starbucks campaign and they're like, they just, these, these kids just make coffee. What's the problem? <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I think the Starbucks workers kind of encounter that narrative and they're real workplace issues in these coffee shops and also in libraries and um, museums. And like there are issues that need to urgently be resolved through collective action. And that is certainly a genesis of organizing. But there's also a piece of the organizing that maybe more than any time ever in my career as an organizer is about, it's about democracy specifically. It's about we want to have a kind of voice at work because we want to change the power dynamic in this workplace specifically thinking about workplace authoritarianism and how it is that we change that, not just in my own store at Starbucks, not just across Starbucks, but across the entire sort of economy in this country. How do we disrupt workplace authoritarianism and start to build something different? Um, these workers sort of come to the campaign, some of them really actively thinking about that piece of it. Um, and yeah, I think that speaks to the to what you were talking about a, a minute ago. Uh, well, I, I mean, it, it, it's it's the, I mean, it's the heart of what um, is, uh, you know, is born in the, you know, in, in the, the story that you recount about the laundry workers. Um, but it also strikes me as being something that like, I, you know, we're seeing little glimmers of in, in our society right now in ways that are really exciting. I think that's right. I think my, you know, my perspective on it too is I'm working on the Starbucks campaign right now. And so my perspective on it is sort of skewed. I'm interested to know in the work that you do, if, if these are like the, the kind of glimmers of this are happening everywhere. I imagine that they are. Um, I am excited to sort of at some point um, go back and do some more organizing in, in the world of industrial laundries. And I imagine that I mean, I know that for Alma, thinking about workplace authoritarianism was a place that the campaign took her for sure. Mm -hmm. And the worker leaders that she was able to develop across the city of Phoenix, they were also actively thinking about this. It's not just that it's like the Starbucks workers have invented this question about workplace authoritarianism and how to how to disrupt it. But I feel like it's present in the organizing on a daily basis right now. And that seems new to me. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you know, in my, in my experience, um, I, teachers care a lot about um, being able to participate in decision making and, and, and that. Uh, and that's certainly been it, it, at the heart of what, uh, you know, I think has allowed the Chicago Teachers Union to be a militant union and to, and to, um, to 
intervene in social debates, you, you know, and I, because the boss's refrain is always, well, you know, why are you guys talking to us about, you know, pick the social issue, you know, homelessness or racism or, you know, uh, um, uh, what, you know, what over policing looks like, you know, your teachers, why don't you just, why don't you please just come and bargain with us about like, you know, um, uh, you know how much your raise is going to be and then, and then, um, you, you know, get an agreement and go back to work. And um, I don't, you, you know, I, I don't, I think that that is what people will do in unions as long as they are never like never kind of catch on that you can actually ask for more things than that you know it, it, you know if that's all you're if that's all you ever told your union is for and that's all you ever see you know it can be hard to imagine that it can be different but once you start thinking about it it's different um, yeah pe people are, are really interested in those kind of questions um, yeah and they, they, CTU very much at the forefront of that bar bargaining for the common good like bargaining for um, better communities right better um, yeah, to yeah, well, radically I, I change the places where we work and thinking of place as, as broader than sort of the factory walls or the classroom yeah. walls, but like we're, yeah, we're bargaining yeah. for this place, this community, this city, this, yeah. Yeah, right. What, what, what can, what can our role be, you know, in, in our, in, in our lives? Um, because there aren't a whole lot of other institutions that um, have the potential power that a union has that workers actually get to like own and control and know the people who are important in it and, and, and whatnot. And so once you start thinking and talking in a broader way, uh, it strikes me as I, you know, and I, I, I always, you know, there was part of me, I guess, that that didn't think about it um, as broadly when, when I was running the teachers union, because you, you, obviously that's a lot of work. <laughs> And you have to, um, but now, you know, but, but actually reading your book is one of the things that really got me thinking about the question of, you know, I don't know what that would look like in just a straight up industrial union or union that where, you know, the, the, the social questions are raised more easily in a school setting because, you know, the, the learning conditions of the kids are attached to all these other questions. Um, um, you know, and it's, I think it's, it maybe it would be a little bit more difficult in industrial laundry um, to figure out how to raise social concerns and questions, but maybe not as difficult as we think, you know? I think it's a question of like the political power that the employer has in the communities as well. It's difficult for an industrial laundry owner in one community to actually um, make change or be forced to make change in a broader way though i think it is certainly i think it's certainly possible i mean if you organize an entire industry in a city the entirety of the industrial laundry um <clears throat> you know industry in phoenix let's say i imagine that if those employers got together and were forced to sort of um require certain things to change about public transportation or um, food programs or um, immigration status or um, to allow um, domestic abuse shelters in Phoenix to um, create space for people that are not yet documented um, employed. Like there are all kinds of things that they, they could sort of flex their muscle and get done, I'm sure, if they were forced to. Right. Yeah. 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 No. That's that's the, absolutely. Um, you know. You know. Um, I we're gonna um, 
get into like getting getting questions, which I'm looking forward to um, uh, from people who are watching. But I be but I did want to raise, uh, and this is maybe a good segue for it. Um, the you know I, I keep raving about the book. Um, one of the th and, and you know and I I hope people read it. it. It's 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 a lovely read. And one of the things that's really like I thought impressive about it is that it doesn't. It's not. I mean, obviously we've mentioned this the actual the narrative arc of the organizing campaign, and we talked uh, we talked a bit about some of the questions that it gets into about both you know about union relations and the history of the labor movement. Um, in some ways, um, you you know unite in particular Act Two. Um, but um, it, this is also a book about the human condition, you know, and there's real art in this book, um, Daisy. And I was, um, I, you know, I was hoping you could say a little bit about how in the world you found the inspiration to, um, you know, for example, it has, um, it has alternating chapters that are about moths. Um, which I, I found to be a really interesting, uh, you know, it's a literary device, but it's also just, I, you know, I just found it was interesting. Um, where you found the inspiration for that, and, and maybe you could say a little bit more about, um, um, you know, what it's like writing a work of literature that's <laughs> uh, also a book about union organizing. Thanks for saying those kind words. Yeah, the, you know, the there are alternating chapters about moths. Um, if you haven't read the book, it's sort of like, what, what are they talking about? Um, you know what, I, I think the, the moths in some way were sort of hopelessly intertwined with the feeling of organizing. I mentioned that earlier, that I really wanted to write a book that would allow people to access what it feels like to be on an organizing campaign. And in the early 2000s, when I was organizing there among industrial laundry workers, um, there was this massive kind of um, attack of moths on the city of Phoenix during right during the time when we did the blitz at Alma's factory. And there were moths just sort of everywhere. There had been this bizarre winter rain and then moths. Um, a lot of the work that we were doing because Alma's factory was 24-7, we were running shift meetings in the middle of the night in sort of the, the parking lot in front of the plant after the blitz when the campaign had gone public. So in the middle of the night, we're standing there under floodlights in this parking lot and the moths were just sort of swarming everywhere and kind of plinking their bodies against the light ahead, you know, overhead. So it became this kind of ambient noise through which the campaign was was moving all the time and I started having really strange dreams about moths and they still you know it's not like I love moths they creep me out they're like furry and scaly and and I was having these weird dreams about them and this campaign had just taken off and these workers were getting slaughtered i mean by by their bot their union was just getting attacked really viciously people were getting fired and threatened and um and and the two things just became really twinned in my mind and later you know there's i won't give give away the end but there's some real heartbreak that happens kind of at the end of the book and i had to quit organizing for a while i left and thought that I was so heartbroken about what had happened that I couldn't think about it at all. 
And instead, I just thought, oh, I have this weird curiosity about moths. <laughs> and I'm going to start like investigating and doing very bad art projects about moths. Um, and the more I looked into sort of researching like the biology of moths and um, other aspects of their kind of collection over time, the more I found ways that they actually connected to the earliest moments of the labor movement or labor resistance um, globally and even here in the U.S. And of course, moths sort of led me back to being forced in some way to kind of think through the organizing campaign and my role in it and to question and think through all the things that we've been, been talking about. Um, be, because that's what it was about in the first place. Like the whole investigation of moss was really just a way for me to think about what had happened without thinking about what had happened. So there's a part of the book where the moths are a literary device. Maybe they're a metaphor. One of the things I say that's kind of maybe annoyingly literary is that pe people who read books often know the person who wrote the book. Um, they, 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 you know, we, we, I, I at least lost that. Maybe it's my internet, but could you say that okay. last sentence again? People who read books and then I. People who read books often know more about what the book means than the person who wrote the book. So other people can do some real work on the moths and tell, tell me what they mean. But for me, they were like, they were a real thing that happened in Phoenix and that were a part of the campaign. And I didn't really know how to write the story about what happened there without writing about the moths. And then they become a space where I can really think hard about what happens when people form unions and what my own sort of power and complicity was in all of the events that happened in Phoenix and, and nationally with my union. Um, I like it because it's an irrational element. I'll be honest, like in, in the sense that like, you, you know, the, the there's a basic story that we tell of organizing, which is about logos, which is sort of the, you know, the, the basic premise is that like, you know, together we're going to have more power than we have as a bunch of scattered individuals. Uh, and that's the basic, you know, like you, you tell that in a lot of different ways and, you know, you get good at that and you're a union organizer. Mm -hmm. um, um, uh, you know, and like you, I'm deeply suspicious of people who try to um, uh, do union organizing through some kind of, um, you know, attempt to, um, to create personal loyalty based on finding out some, you know, uh, deep psychological trauma and exploiting it to get someone to do stuff they wouldn't ordinarily do. I, you know, I, I don't think people become self-actual, realize that way. I don't, you know, I think that gives you power over them where the goal is for them to have power over their life and their situation, um, yeah. you know, collective, collectively. Um, but then all that said, um, you know, all this work is emotional and, um, you know, there's, um, there's elation and there's, um, there's the craziness of the drive to keep beating ourselves against the lampshade, even when it doesn't feel rational anymore. Uh, and there's some heart, there's heartbreak to it and, you know, there's relation to it and there's all that human emotion. And, um, you know, I just thought that, you know, having a periodic reading about the moss was a chance to reflect on that. And, 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 you know, it, it made the human parts of the book, um, that much more, um, uh, impactful. Um, and, and, uh, I, it's, I just think it's important. It was to, to me, it was a very human book, you, you know, um, 
And that's something which is worth us keeping in mind is, is how human this work is. Uh, and uh, be proud of it and happy in touch with our own humanity about it. Yeah. I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that that felt important to you. It, well, it was important to me too to sort of, you know, this is organizing is is personal um, in some ways, political in a lot of ways, but the 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 emotion behind it is really real. And I think you know you said a moment ago when you were president of CTU that it was you didn't do a lot of thinking about the work because there's so much work to be done. We're working and working and working. It's like you're on strapped to the front of this freight chain, <laughs> getting the work done. It's hard to really reflect. And, and I think that that's, um, that's something to really think about as we, as we uh, kind of rebuild and take a step into the, the sort of next um, phase of the labor movement in this country how do we build enough time in to to think about the work that we're doing um, and to reflect on it in real time? I mean, we do debriefs, right? right? Debrief is a part of the culture of the union, and that's important, but that's not real time for thinking and reflection and and making, yeah. I, 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 I'm convinced it's somewhat related to the to the the way in which we've um, uh, you know which we've divided out the, the 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 technocratic kind of thinking strategic set of roles which a set of full time professionals do and you know and, and where the the abiding value is people who like are self sacrificing and working their asses off you know um, and, and I do you know for all that I criticize trade union officials having been one, um, you know, I, I, I've met very few groups of people who as a, as a mat, general matter work harder and people are working their butts off. Um, yeah. And I don't think it's a particularly healthy, uh, I'm sure that term is, but like, you know, that, that division out of like, okay, there's a set of people doing that. And there's a lot of other people who are, you know, um, doing the work of the union in the workplace and, and, um, you know, are consumers of unionism, um, as opposed to the people who are having to grapple with all the thoughts of it, um, strikes me that like, we're never going to get where we need to be unless, you know, the rank and file members of our unions are also grappling with, you know, as part of what they do it in, in their conversation with coworkers and, you know, the sort of the ongoing culture of, of the union, you know, day in, day out at work uh, are grappling with where the thing, where the thing needs to go and what it needs to look like and feel like and be like, et cetera. And, you know, I say all of this knowing that the answer is not an easy one, right? It's not just like, oh, we should build in time for reflection into, um, I mean, in some ways it is that simple, but in a lot of ways, like when you're engaged in a campaign um, that has to be by design kind of relentless in order to win, it's not easy to say that, oh, we should slow down. We should focus on the deeper work of building the union, we should focus, we should build in time to reflect on the practices. I mean, when you're, when you're in a fight, you're in a fight, you know, and um, there's a real tension there. So the answers to these questions that we're raising, I don't think are, are immediately available or necessarily simple or easily arrived at. How much of the, I mean, I'm, well, one of the things that, that, that you saying that struck me as curious, um, which is, you know, I, I wonder how much of the um, the pace 
of uh, our organizing campaigns flow out of the fact that we're fighting for um, that we're that we're fighting for elections. Um, and there's a particular kind of pace that that sense, including like, you know, there's a moment at which you're going to count and you have to be 50% plus one when that vote happens. Actually, there should be more than that because the boss is going to terrify some people um, who otherwise would be supportive. Um, um, I wonder if like, you know, there's other kind of models or ways that that we can build, you know, sub union support um you know in workplaces um that aren't necessarily just gauged towards you know there's a day on calendar and that's mm -hmm. kind of you know i think i've been involved in both board election style campaigns and also comprehensive campaigns that didn't involve board strategy or board elections and both of them are sort of stomach churningly urgent at every moment at every turn and part of it is that you know that there aren't there they're not to use the sort of cliche about the level playing field but like the playing field is not only not level it's such a it's like scaling a cliff having to get to a moment where you workers have enough power to convince their boss to sit down and bargain a contract with them and so in both styles of campaigning, there has to be, you have to build enough momentum to really create a moment where there's no other choice that they can make because otherwise they're just gonna make the choice to keep fighting, right? Okay. And it's, it's a nearly impossible task, even though we do win sometimes, right? That it's, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't be so hard. Um, and if it weren't so hard, if it weren't so hard, then there would be other um, sort of paces maybe available to campaigning. Um, I don't know. I'm curious to know what you think. What you think about that is—is is it just the problem that the fucking no, I, has too I, much I, power? <laughs> well, I, right. I mean, it, it's definitely the case that that you know um, people can create pockets of unionism that are kind of um that are just bubbling along underneath the surface um in a workplace and you can you don't need to necessarily provoke a, you know that that can that can simmer along for a long time under you know underneath the surface um but when you get to the point where you actually have to have a fight with the boss the problem is the the when you fight the boss take a swing of the boss the boss will chop off your head if you don't if you don't actually win um so you know it winds up having any meaningful fight to change work has to, you have to get to, if not a majority, then, I mean, sometimes much more than majority, you know, like, a, or you've got to figure out how you can stop work or, you know, like the, the boss has to be forced with power to mm -hmm. not just retaliate by firing all the people who are involved um, or, 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 or whatever. And, um, so I, I so I agree that like it's there is something very very life or death about that the, those those campaigns are are, are super um are super one of being super fraught let me um um uh, that's that that's interesting we could talk about that more um, we're starting to get some questions um and I wonder if I could um 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 uh, sort of pass some of them along here um um 
there's a, um, a, a question from Felix. Your book is exceptional exploring ethical and emotional dimensions of organizing. Um, can you talk about balancing interpersonal and ethical questions um, on the one hand with building powerful strategic unions at scale? What was the last part of that? Can you say so that? Your, your book is, and it's in the chat too, so if you wanna see oh. it. Um, your book is exceptional in exploring ethical and emotional dimensions of organizing. Can you talk about balancing interpersonal and ethical questions? So interpersonal ethical questions with building powerful strategic unions at scale. Yeah, I think this touches on what we were what we were just talking about. You know that um, like balancing interpersonal and ethical questions in, in some ways it's a question of time. Like we need the time to be able to build um, structures that are truly durable and democratic and can ask and answer the interpersonal and ethical questions that we really desperately do need to address um, as a movement, as a whole, I would say. Um, and when you're inside a campaign, and you know, it struck me while, while you were talking a minute ago, Jesse, that you know, most of the work that I've done is new organizing work. So there's this real race against time because time really is a weapon of, you know, the boss. So we are constantly sort of racing against time in new organizing to win a union and win union recognition and a contract for the first time. And and there there's this question of how do we how do we find the time to answer those kinds of ethical questions? Because I think the way the labor movement, or at least the parts of it that I've worked in, tends to answer that question currently is like we can think about that stuff there's a whole life that workers will have in their union after they win the first contract and there are structures inside unions where um, you know people are members and are under collective bargaining agreements and then their second cba and their third cba those um those are the times when we can really more deeply address the kind of ethical questions that are kind of at the heart of the book and, and this conversation. Um, and that that's the time when deep democratic structures can be built into the union. They're, they're often not, but they could be and should be at that time. And the campaign to win is the campaign to win. And we just have to be sort of full on, we're fighting the boss and we're going to win this fight. And then we'll get to that stuff later, right? But I think that, I don't think that's quite right. And I don't think it's quite right because the fight itself gives shape to the union that workers participate in later, right? The fight itself and the leaders that sort of arise in the shape and culture of the fight end up being leaders in the union that exists afterwards. And if we don't find ways to both sort of fight with all of the speed and might that we have to in order to win and take into account some of the ethical questions that we're grappling with at the same time, we end up building unions that are not truly democratic or rank and file led or because they're used to participating and winning a union that has really been um, led by staff, union professionals, research experts, legal experts, that kind of thing. And there's a real, there's a question about how to democratize the skills that it takes to win a fight during a fight. And that's really fucking hard to do. It's not right. that no one's answered this question because, um, because it shouldn't be answered. It's just because 
it's it's hard to win and build the right kind of union at the same time, right? Yeah, no, that, that that's right. I mean, certainly, um, and then I guess there's all kinds of um, conjunctures that make it more like, what if your union is? I mean, as as you write about, like, what if there's an element of the recognition of the union that involves a deal that's made by an employer with a union somewhere in a room far away? Uh, and so people don't perceive their union as being the result of um, their fight. They perceive it as being the result of some agreement, in which case the important thing is the person who gets to sit and make the agreement, not the workers at a workplace. And that's a bad recipe for having an effective union. Um, um, so, you know, that, and there's a bunch of other kinds of examples along those same lines, um, uh, you know, as, as well. I, I think that's right. I, no, I, it occurs to me that like, um, you know, there are some, in my experience, like there's some, there's some profoundly ethical things about, you know, organizing, um, um, you know, one of which is that like, you know, as an organizer, you do ask workers to take things that, you know, are risky. And you have to ask, I, I found myself asking a lot, you know, is it is it fair to ask someone to take this risk? You know, we're going to do this. Um, you know, you know, are you will you participate in it? Um, you know, you know, the, the you get the question, will, will I get fired for that? And the answer is you might. Um, and, you know, I guess I do think, um, you know, I think that like if you're not if, if, if you don't give if workers don't have the chance to actually make that decision for themselves, um, that's yes. not really their union. Like organizers can't lie about risks because then, then that's really messed up. But if you're being honest with people about risks, um, then I think that there's something, you know, there's some method. I, I feel like there's an ethical um, kind of element to that. Yeah. You know, that's a conversation that I, I feel like I've had multiple times during, you know, the 20 years that I've been an organizer. And part of it is that question, is it fair to ask someone to take this risk? Um, and I always think, is it is it fair to not ask? You know, the choice, is, it's not our, our choice, right? The, it's important that that the risk is understood and that the person who is is or is not going to take the risk gets to choose whether to take the risk or not, right? right? Um, and to understand it inside of the context of how we build power and and win. So, like, you know, people can't make choices about that kind of stuff without a, a sort of broader context or vision about what it takes to to build what it is that they're trying to build with their coworkers. Right. Um, and and how the the risk may or may not be a part of this like long longer path to building and winning a union. Yeah. But people have to make those choices for themselves. We don't get to say this is too risky. I'm not even going to ask. And we don't get to say, um, no, you could not. It's impossible for you to get fired for doing this because, I mean, you and I've seen probably over and over and over people get fired for. Um, taking on their boss. I mean, it happens all the time. I think at this point, 178 Starbucks worker leaders have been fired. That's wild. And workers, um, you know, on a daily basis are asking me, can I get fired for doing this? The answer is yes. yes. Yes, you can get fired for doing this. You should not get fired for doing it. 
when they fire you, if they fire you, it will be illegal for them to fire you, but you can get fired for doing it. Yeah. Um, there's a question about a Starbucks campaign, and, and, let the, and then bring it in here. Um, watching from afar, one of the exciting things about the Starbucks campaign has been the importance placed on worker organizers. Um, can you talk about how much of that is a conscious strategy in the part of Workers United? Um, and then why do you think you don't? Uh, we don't see the same emphasis from some other unions? So. I mean, the Starbucks campaign, I'll say, is unlike any other campaign that I've ever worked on in that it it really is being led by worker leaders who learned how to organize their stores and then taught other worker other workers at other stores how to organize their stores. And then they learned how to do it and taught other workers how to organize their stores. And the other day we won a union election at the 12th Starbucks store here in the Pittsburgh area. And I was counting the generations of this kind of training model that they use, that they've developed and use on the campaign. And this was a fourth generation store that just won. So the worker leaders there learned how to organize their store from a worker leader at another store who has been illegally fired, who learned how to organize her store from another worker leader who learned how to organize their store from the original worker leaders in Buffalo. That was a lot of information, but I think, I hope that makes sense. It was like a fourth generation store. That's where we are in the campaign at this point, which I think is really, really incredible. The question of, was this part of a conscious strategy and workers united? No, it was not. Um, you know, workers um, were organizing coffee across the market in Buffalo, New York, and got to the point where they needed to organize Starbucks to continue organizing the market. Um, and I think I had, I worked for Workers United at the time. Um, I didn't even hear about it until the campaign was live. Um, and I think that some people in the union thought, this is crazy. What are we doing taking on Starbucks in a tiny market like Buffalo, New York? What, what are they, what are we doing here? Um, you, there was no conscious strategy. This is not a chosen target. It's workers organized a few stores in Buffalo. And the next day, the union started getting calls from dozens of workers across the country saying, I want to do what they did. And I saw what the company put them through, and I want to do it here anyway, because now I can't believe Starbucks treated them that way. And we're going to build this union. Um, and it took like wildfire. Sorry, Jesse. Uh, no, no, I just want to get it because uh, I, I think part of what the question was getting in is has been has the has, has the worker leadership uh, part of it um, been conscious? Like, so I mean, I hear you saying that the camp, the, the God, yeah, okay, great. Well, I know I'm bored today. It's Tuesday. I think I'll organize Starbucks. Um, yeah, um, I get that. Um, but like, but as the campaign has developed, have you um, ha have you consciously sort of thought about the way that layers of worker organizers are developing and training? Yes. So, you know, the campaign sort of grew very quickly. And for several months, Workers United was trying to figure out how to play catch up to the level of energy and excitement among workers that existed um, and trying to help find you know, the campaign quickly took root in a bunch of geographies across the country and workers there started developing their own training materials and their own websites and social media feeds and 
there was a lot of really good organizing happening, but it was happening um, in different ways, sort of, you know, there's a lot of parochialism on the campaign in a good way. But then when we, we had to sort of catch up to the momentum and say, okay, what's working on the campaign clearly is that these workers are doing it themselves. And how do we maintain that, but help them build structures so that they're communicating with each other nationally, making decisions about their campaign nationally, sort of um, illuminating best practices of the organizing that they are learning how to do and teaching each other how to do, and then scaling them nationally, providing national trainings instead of the same or similar trainings happening in 19 cities. How do we do one um, that, you know, some of the greatest worker leaders who know how to run that training the best can run for everyone nationally. So my job on the campaign as sort of the national field director has really just been how do I get people who are doing something really well in Boston in touch with the people who are trying to figure out how to do that in Atlanta? And how do I get the people in San Antonio to do what they're doing um, and help the worker leaders in Oklahoma City do that thing that they're doing in San Antonio? You know, it's sort of like right. connecting the dots and scaling the good practices that are happening all across the country. So that part of it is very conscious and we're we're actively working all the time to kind of maintain that um that core of the campaign which is really what matters about it yeah i know that that's that's a very exciting description about the way um practices awareness you, you know um habits of mind um you, you know get shared around um because i imagine that the you know if, if there's 172 workers that have been fired there are some the, the intensity of um you know you have all the intensity and and you know um so that when um when shit happens on the campaign you you need to have the people who represent the union um have to like go into battle it yeah yeah that's right so how do we like build a mechanism that can sort of respond with urgency and speed but really um sort of keep the agency and the training and the like all of the expertise that workers have been able to develop for themselves on the campaign in the hands of worker leaders on the campaign, right? So how do we bring to bear the sort of resources and heft of the union behind, you know, put it behind what the workers themselves have built without sort of over overcoming it or overshadowing it or big, big footing it? Um, yeah. It, it's a real question. It's a real, um, it, it's a, it's a new kind of work for me um, and sort of really challenging and rewarding to have to figure out that puzzle all the time. Um, we're, we're really right at the end of time. Uh, and there's a question here that, that uh, I think you've just started to answer. Um, I'll mention it and maybe, um, you know, you could say something um, sort of in, in closing around it. Um, someone th says, Daisy, I, I so appreciate, Maggie says, Daisy, I so appreciate your willingness to analyze your own practices. 20 years later, are there specific changes that you made in your daily work that are illustrative of your, your shifting thinking and philosophy? Um, I will just say that, you know, and, and I, I won't come in again after this, but um, I really appreciated um, the conversation and reading the book. Um, my thinking uh, has grown a lot. I hope we can I hope we can stay in touch after this after this um, uh, little panel here. Um, and yeah, so um, so on that line about kind of um, how you've thought about sort of what needs to happen in the Starbucks context. 
20 years of experience in the movement. Um, are there, you know, how, have, you know where, are we, where are you thinking we're headed <laughs> or you're headed? I think, um, you know, the workers on this campaign are um, doing things that I've never seen on any campaign before. Um, and part of that is sort of like building the structure of the union that they're going to live in that they're gonna inhabit moving forward while we are campaigning to win a contract. So this question I was asking before about like, it's hard to do both things at the same time. That question is very much top of mind all the time on this campaign. Um, and the, the workers themselves are finding really innovative ways to, to answer the question. Um, like the internal structures that they build, they have, um, you know, all kinds of workshops for each other about facilitation and ethical communication structures and um, other other kinds of trainings that they are developing and running with each other. So they're thinking actively about the union that they are building while they're fighting to win it. And I think that's really key to like, how do we how do we create practices in campaigning that build the kinds of unions that workers really need to have? in order to have workplace democracy. Um, great. Um, Daisy Pitkin, thank you so much um, for the opportunity to have a conversation. Uh, thanks everyone for being on. Um, thank uh, our sponsors, Hammerarchal Books, of course, and the Caucus of Frank about Educators Core, uh, Labor Notes, and uh, the Pilsen Community Books. Uh, and thank you to you all. Thank you everyone. so much, Jesse. It was so great to talk to you. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, Subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.